Half of adolescents who die by suicide have a history of self-harm. And in the UK, the rates of adolescents who commit suicide jump from 3.2 to 5.4 per 100,000 between 2010 and 2015. The National Suicide Prevention Strategy recently expanded its scope by aiming to reduce self-harm rates as a common precursor to suicide. So it's really important that we have an accurate measure of rates of self-harm in the population. A new research published on bmj.com aims to do that. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the Journal, and to discuss that research, I'm joined by one of the authors of that paper. Navneet Kapoor is Professor of Psychiatry and Population Health at the University of Manchester. Nav, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us this afternoon. Great, that's a pleasure. Now, we'll we'll delve into your research um, in detail in a bit. Um, But the first thing I wanted to say is, you know, you're talking about self-harm here. And the way that's defined by NICE, um, it's in a very broad way. It says any act of self-poisoning or self-injury, irrespective of motivation. Now, yes. your research is helping, you know, establish a baseline. And like I said, we'll get into that into a bit. Yes. Um, but isn't it that motivation which is the key to really understanding what's going on here? Yeah, so you're, you're absolutely right. Um, this is an epidemiological study that looks at how common self-harm is uh, through a primary care perspective. The links with mortality and the possible reasons and a possible um, possible um, rise and we speculate on the reasons for that rise uh, amongst 13 to 16 year old girls but you're right you know one of the one of the tasks of a a clinician dealing with young people who self-harm is to really understand the reasons for self-harm do a proper assessment and hopefully hopefully help the young person access the psychological interventions or indeed pharmacological interventions that they might need Mm. um now you you sort of foregrounded a little bit of this already but um, could you give us an overall picture um, of what it is that your research found? Yeah um, I think the, the first thing we, we just need to be clear on and you've, you've raised it Duncan is, is what we're talking about here so we're talking about self-harm which sometimes when you talk about self-harm um, you know in the emergency room or to general medical professionals they're thinking well you're talking just about self-cutting but but actually if we're talking in terms of um, people presenting to hospital services, about 80% of self-harm cases are um, instances of self-poisoning. So about 80% self-poisoning, 20% other types of self-injury. And that was echoed in this study as well. So the other really important thing to say about this study is really it's the first one to look at self-harm from a primary care perspective. So these were children, young people, uh, where self-harm was recorded in primary care. We used a primary care database uh, called the uh, Care Practice Research Data Link, the CPRD, uh, which is familiar to, to many uh, primary care practitioners and researchers. So, so it's a, it's a primary care perspective on on this on this uh, really really important mm-hmm. uh, problem. Um, so, um, and we linked uh, the primary care data with mortality data. We linked it with hospital data, and and and, and some of the most important findings are, you know, uh, are 
uh, are findings that confirm some of the stuff we know from hospital-based research. So a higher rate of self-harm in girls than boys, approximately three times higher, um, an association with um, a later mortality risk, particularly suicide. So in the, ch the children who self-harmed compared with um, uh, um, a matched sample of children who didn't self-harm, the children who self-harmed were 17, more time, 17 times more likely mm -hmm. to die by suicide during the follow-up period. Um, one of the other main findings was, I think, you know, quite an interesting kind of illustration of Tudor Hart's inverse care law. So uh, what we found was that uh, children uh, and young people who lived in the most deprived areas, so they're living in the most deprived areas, you're expecting the uh, highest rates of psychiatric morbidity, psychological distress, uh, the most complex needs they were least likely to be referred to specialist services. So the kids who we think might need most help, least likely to be referred to specialist services. But I suppose for me, you know, what was most interesting about the study was this, you know, steep uh, and apparent uh, rise of 70%, 70% in the incidence of self-harm between 2011 and 2014, specifically in girls aged 13 to mm. 16. Um, and on that, I mean, you've already described the, the link between um, self-harm and then later um, death by suicide. Uh, does mm -hmm. that hold out in, in that population with the 70% the increase as well? Um, well, we, di we didn't look at it in that subgroup um, because uh, numerically that would have been difficult. But yes, it, it's very likely to apply across the board. It's a universal finding from studies of self-harm and suicidal behaviour that, you know, if a person has taken um, some tablets to hurt themselves, has injured themselves in, in, in any other way, uh, they are much, much higher risk of suicide. And it, it sometimes, you know, it, it, sometimes people think, well, self-cutting is a, you know, a low-risk behaviour. Actually, people who self-cut, self-injure and present to services are at even higher risk of suicide uh, than people who self-poison. So, so I think that, that, as you say, that link between self-harm and suicide is really, really important. And, you know, that 70% increase, you know, is, um, is significant in terms of, you know, if, if we want to really kind of tackle um, the phenomenon of young person mm. suicide. Um, now, uh, I want to, to get into that, but a little bit about your data um, yes. before, before we get sure. there. Um, yes. Now, as you said, this was um, based on on um, CPRD records, so that's people who yes. have yes. presented in primary care um, with self harm. Yes. Now, yes, that are those are people who have actually presented. Um, how good is your data? Yeah, sure, and and it's important. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's a really important point, and obviously, you know, we're, we're talking about. CPRD here we're talking and CPRD is an excellent research resource but it is based on routinely collected data and we all know that you know there are problems when routinely collected data with under ascertainment of cases so it's possible that some cases of self-harm may have been missed. There's also problems with routine data collection in terms of um, you know the depth of information that's available so for example we didn't have we couldn't get really detailed data on method of self-harm the categories were very broad in this study. And the other point is, remember, this is this is self-harm that's recorded in primary care. So, so some of it may have been young people 
presenting to self-harm to their doctors, uh, their primary care doctors, their general practitioners for the first time. Other times it may be that they'd come to see their general practitioner after they'd self-harm and mm-hmm. presented to hospital. So, so remember, these are, these are records of self-harm in primary care, but you're absolutely right. One of the things we refer to is, a, is an iceberg of uh, suicidal behaviour or self-harm in that you, know, you might have suicide right at the top, then below that you've got self-harm which presents to services. But we know that below the waterline, almost kind of hidden, is a, is a whole lot of self-harm and suicidal thoughts that never present to services um, at all. And in fact, we've, we've done a recent, uh, a recent study of this kind of iceberg model in relation to self-harm in, in young people and adolescents. Now, um, the group that presents to services, although you know, they're, 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 that's a smaller group than the proportion of young people that may have hurt themselves in the community and not, not told doctors about it, nevertheless, they're an important group. They're an important group because they're a group that we know um, are at risk of later suicide. And also, there's a kind of responsibility issue here. If a young person is in distress... Um, has hurt themselves and has presented to services, then, you know, obviously those of us working in clinical services really have a duty mm. to do something about it. So they're a group that's amenable to prevention and they're a group that, um, you know, have a higher mortality risk. Um, I mean, one thing looking, reading your study, I was, I was, I don't know if I should have been shocked, but I was shocked by how young, um, you know, the, the group that you were looking mm-hmm. at started at, uh, there were people in there aged yes. just 10. Yes, yeah, no, so, um, you know, what, what happens across the life course is that the rates of self-harm, rates of suicidal behaviour, rates of suicide change. Um, and yes, um, uh, yes, uh, some, some individuals can be quite young. We tend not to record um, suicidal behaviour uh, in um in in children younger than 10 because from a you know almost a, a developmental or, or cognitive perspective it, it's it, you know we we think that um children below that age in general aren't able to kind of conceptualize what it what it means to hurt themselves what it what it means to die by suicide so there's a if you like a developmental kind of paradigm there and but but you know certainly it, it, some some individuals uh, in in the cohort are quite young, um, and the other thing I think that's quite striking when you look at age groups is that we know from the worldwide research that the incidence of self harm increases very very rapidly um, in, in during adolescence. Like so, um, as uh, you know, common mental disorders, as many other things, the the, the incidence of suicide, you, you know, you see a, 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 uh, the incidence of self harm, sorry, and suicidal behaviour increases rapidly during the teenage years and we think that's to do possibly with kind of biological um, changes it's to do with increasing kind of self-awareness and it's to, uh, and it's to do with kind of increased social contact and kind of social roles in adolescence so you do so so some uh, some kids start quite young you see this rapid escalation in in adolescence and early adulthood um, but I mean you know I think one of the other things that, that practitioners need to be aware of and we've we've kind of uh, highlighted it in the paper is you know sometimes especially with regards to the 70% increase um, and we can talk a bit about what that might be about in a in a in a second but but I think you know sometimes you know people could be really alarmed by these findings and 
The other thing I think to say that that, that may mitigate against that a little bit is that in the majority of cases, um, kids who self-harm don't go on to self-harm as adults. So there's a really uh, excellent kind of cohort study based on Australian data in several waves um, and what they found was that for nine out of ten young people who self-harmed, the behavior didn't continue into adults. One in ten it did, but for nine out of ten it didn't. Now, so that, that's a kind of, if you like, a reassuring message. But I think, you know, equally there are very powerful messages, you know, the link with mortality, the the possible increase in incidence, the higher rate in girls and boys, that means we must, we must take self-harm seriously. Um, I mean, you, you, you've talked about this a little bit, but um, teenagers, you know, the, that might be more vulnerable, their biology and, and various things going on. Um, but what is it, do you think, that's fueling this, this enormous increase in self-harm that you've seen? Right, I, I think, I think it's, it's absolutely kind of, um, you know, it's, a, it's a, a fundamental question. I mean, the other thing I think we need to bear in mind, and, you know, uh, those, those, uh, those of us who work with data, those of us who work with epidemiology and, and, and data sets will be familiar, is if you see a 70% increase, um, the first thing I'm thinking of as a kind of sceptical researcher is, well, actually, is it, is it real? And one possibility is, you know, self-harm, mental health issue, self-harm um, has got a reasonable amount of press recently. It's, it's high on the list of policy priorities. And, you know, could this just be an increasing awareness of self-harm? Could it be uh, an increasing... Um, uh, uh, an increasing kind of uh, ability, an increasing um, um, uh, um, wish to kind of disclose by um, by by young people and their parents, so they they're they're more willing to disclose it. Um, general practitioners are more aware of it. So so it, could it be a case identification um, artifact almost? And yes, it could. I think it, it could, and we've we've seen this in other data sets. So some of the hospital admission data. The only thing against that is that the voice did seem to be specific to 13 to 16 year old girls. We didn't see it in the um, age groups of girls either side of that 13 to 16 year old group. So there's something going on there. And um, the data kind of actually converge with some of the hospital based data that we've collected as part of the multi center um, project, um, uh, multi center monitoring project of self harm in England uh, led by colleagues in Oxford. One of the um, you know, that, that seems to suggest an increasing rate in young people. The National um, Psychiatric Morbidity Survey um, this time round had some interesting data which suggested self-harm in young people was increasing too. And we know from that same survey that levels of psychiatric morbidity might be higher in young people now than they were in the past. So it, it's possible, it's, it's certainly feasible that young people are experiencing more stressful lives now than they did in the past. And and in our study of suicide in young people that we um, that we published last year, um, we we identified factors like school pressures, um, especially related to exams, things like bullying and physical illness, um, but also bereavement in young people. So so a wide variety of different risk factors, but some of them, you know, related to um, uh, pressures that first become prominent in mm. adolescence. So I think you know that 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 that's. You know that, that's what we've got to think about when when we're thinking about this possible um, acute rise. I was going to say um, the the as you said the the population bump that is um, is showing this, this much higher rate of of 
South Harlem is is fairly small, and uh, you know, fourteen, sixteen year old girls. Is there an element of I don't know? Um, is there a social element in there, in the way that we? That's very important. You know, one of the things we 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 know is that suicidal behaviour, self harm, is to a certain extent, you know, almost kind of mm. contagious. So if you get um, an an instance of self harm. You know, the, the people who know the person who is self-harmed are themselves at greater risk, either through a kind of direct connection. So we talk about so-called point clusters where several people who have self-harmed knew each other or by a kind of mass media effect. So uh, we call those mass clusters where, you know, a group of people, a group of young people have been exposed to, to, to a common uh, common kind of stimulus, common kind of adverse factor, and generally, you know, that might, that might be media related. So, media reporting of a particular kind of self harm case, particular suicide case, might uh, induce a mass cluster. So, I think that social element is really important. Um, social media may be important. You know, it's something that's got had a great deal of attention recently. That you know, suicidal behaviour is spreading through social media and. Well, you know, there may be instances where it does, but actually quite a lot of social media, quite a lot of internet content is helpful. Obviously, you know, regulation may play a role for the for the content that's overtly unhelpful and, and, and damaging, but social media, the internet are here to stay and really what we're what we need to be doing with respect to the kind of social media angle is is um, you know educating our young people and how to how to navigate uh, navigate all that rather than you know I think you know banning it all will be um, impossible. But it's not just social media. So there, there's other social elements. So you know particular subgroups of people who might might think that you know um, that within their subgroups it's kind of culturally sanctioned. It's kind of acceptable. So you know I think reducing the kind of acceptability, educating young people in self-harm is, is really important. Mm. Um, I mean, now I'd like to go on and talk a little bit about, you know, um, how to help people uh, who are in this situation. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, part of your research, you looked at interactions with the health service, and that includes um, interactions with, you know, psychiatry teams. Um, yeah. Are these children accessing psychiatric services um well um you know our, our research suggests that you know a minority are accessing uh psychiatric services um you you could i suppose make a case that um you know many more people need to need to be accessing uh, accessing them but again we you know the, the wider context is really important here um you know what should health services be doing for self-harm generally what should health services be doing for self-harming young people? Now, you know, one of the most important things is if, if someone's in distress, as people who self-harm inevitably are, if they've hurt themselves by taking tablets or cutting themselves, and then they present to our services, one of the things I think they, they need is a proper assessment by someone who's qualified to do that assessment. And yet we know, you know, the wider context here, and it applies to young people as well as older people, is that only about half of people get a psychosocial assessment after self-harm. Why is that important? Well, we, we know a psychosocial assessment might actually, in and of itself, prevent future episodes. So, you know, some research, it's, it's just observational, but suggests that just an assessment might reduce risk of repetition by about 40%. So, so just doing that assessment might help. And I think, you know, those of us who are seeing young people, those of us seeing people in general, you know, I think that's almost the first um, first thing to do. And 
And by doing the assessment, yeah, it's what we talked about right at the beginning, which is you understand the reasons and the motivations in much more detail. You're able to plug people into the appropriate uh, appropriate care. So it's not just about listening there and then um, and the therapeutic kind of uh, relationship, but that, you know, service users tell us that's really helpful. Patients and service users say, you know, if, if you've got someone who's sympathetic and listening, that's helpful in and of itself. But then it's about plugging people into aftercare. And I, I suppose that's another really important message that, that aftercare needs to be based on uh, the young person's needs. You know, sometimes we get obsessed with uh, kind of risks and risk assessment and there's paper out, uh, there's paper out today, in fact, um, uh, that I've co-authored with, with colleagues looking at why we shouldn't kind of just to try and assess risk. It's about the young person's needs uh, following self-harm. And then if, if necessary, referring them for psychological intervention. So we know things like cognitive behavioral therapy, interpersonal therapy um, and um, uh, problem solving therapy may help after self-harm. The evidence is slightly less clear cut for young people. That's probably because there are fewer studies, but psychological interventions can help. The big problem there is the availability of psychological interventions, routine availability of psychological interventions, and providing them quickly. Because if um, if people repeat self-harm, they do so quickly. So about one in 10 people repeat within five days of presenting at hospital. So you know, if we want to, if we want to kind of intervene, we need to get in there quickly, and we need to have psychological interventions that are that are available. But um, you know, also it's it's about working together. So the causes are complex, uh, the, uh, the the solutions are complex too. So if we're talking about the health professionals' role, you know, liaising with family members, liaising with schools, uh, making sure uh, kind of people are um, involved in um, giving the the young person the best care, you know, the best kind of holistic care, I suppose, that they can get. Mm. I mean, you've you've mentioned this already, but you know, access is the big elephant in the room here. Yes. And we've seen people, you know, the children saw um, this weekend sort of a blistering uh, attack, uh, I suppose, yes. of the NHS. Um, and, you know, we've, we've had um, Saffron Cordroy from, from NHS providers just saying mental health provision for, for children and adolescents is not good enough. And, yeah. I mean, your figure showing a 70% increase here. I mean, is this, is this symptomatic of, of our failure to actually provide care to 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 this vulnerable group so i, I wouldn't say it, it it's symptomatic i think it's it's very you know it's very concerning but um can we can we attribute it to, to failures of care I, I i think probably um you know probably not not on its own is care important um for people for young people who suffer absolutely could we be doing a lot better certainly uh, but I think you know, problem, you know, this is an observational study. Um, I don't think we can we can attribute it necessarily to um, to you know uh, care failures. But yeah, there, there is an absolute kind of fundamental message here, <laughs> which is we need to provide those services. And and certainly the profile that that, that self harms had recently, um, you know, the the kind of uh, the the priority in terms of policy. I think this this represents you know the best uh, best opportunity in my kind of 25 years of working in the field that you know we could really make we could really do something amazing here really make a difference. Great. Well, um, now thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thanks very much, Duncan. That was great. Thank you. You've been listening to Navkapoor talk about the research paper, incidents, 
clinical management and mortality risk following self-harm amongst children and adolescents, a cohort study in primary care. That's all for this episode, but we'll be back next week. So subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. We're in most places now. As always, rate and review us. It lets us know what you like and it helps other people to find us. If you like this and you want some more free content, then have a look at bmj.com podcasts. There you'll find years worth of podcasts, literally hundreds of episodes, all available for free at the moment. Thanks for listening.